The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Now, today's program, two parts... Ghosts, life after life. Now, we're going to look first about first of all at the life after life this afternoon. All right, we want to talk about how humanity is put together. In fact, both programs help us with that, so we can understand very clearly about life after death. But we need to look first of all this afternoon at life. Now, life at its best is our first session this afternoon, Maximum Impact Living. You will find this afternoon's program one of those sorts of sessions that really helps you to to really get something out of this program today now. So uh, I think you'll find this very helpful as we look at this first session together. In fact, I think it'd be good for us to ask the good Lord to help us to understand. You know, I've discovered in actual fact that when you go to the Bible and you go to the Psalms, I guess the Psalms tend to be favorites of many people, but it's David who wrote many of the Psalms who said, open my eyes, God, to your words. <laughs> and that's a good thing, a way to start. We cannot really understand this book without the God who put this book together help us to understand what's in its pages. So let's just bow together and ask God to help us to understand this vital subject to this afternoon because they actually go together. By the time we're finished this afternoon, you'll see how they fit together. Father in heaven, this afternoon as we again come to this book, a book that comes from you, a book that we've seen is historically accurate. Its prophecies are dependable with a proven track record, but it's also about life today, helping us to get the most out of life and be able to face the future with absolute confidence. So bless us this afternoon. May we understand in Jesus' name, and we thank you. Amen. You know, when you go to war, or when you watch those soldiers who go to war, and I guess some of you here have been to war, a few of you may have been, I noticed one or two may have actually been in the Second World War, some who are coming, some may have been in the Vietnam War, I'm not sure, but one thing's for sure, if you're going to go to war, you need to be in peak condition, right? You need to be able to be ready for anything and to be physically fit, so to speak. Now, I would remind you that from one of our earlier sessions, we are at war. Whether we believe it or not, whether we know it or not, there are forces right here this afternoon, good and evil, that we cannot see, but they are here, trying to lift us up or trying to push us down. We are in a battle zone. And this afternoon's program will help us learn one of the secrets for winning in this great war that we are all involved in. We need to be in peak condition just like those soldiers, the best we possibly can to be able to win this war. And this afternoon we have a great secret from the Bible on how to do just that. Patmos. Let's go back to the island of Patmos. We were here yesterday and the days before. So let's notice what the Bible says here. You remember from yesterday's program and earlier that three powers seek global worship or allegiance. 
the dragon behind these two powers in front of us this afternoon, these powers seek your allegiance and my allegiance or your worship and my allegiance. We noticed yesterday that that will be the issue in the end of time, global worship or allegiance. Now we notice this afternoon how we can win in that war against these evil powers. Most unfortunately, we'll end up worshipping Satan. And by the way, do not miss Friday night and next Saturday because we're going to unpack who are those two beasts, one from the land and one from the sea. We'll understand about 666 next Saturday afternoon. So be with us. These powers seek global allegiance for Satan or worship. Now, God's final message, we've been unpacking this first message for a number of programs. There's one thing we haven't yet seen right there in the middle of this first angel's message. We notice this. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. We have not yet looked at that part. Give glory to him. We saw yesterday, worship him as the creator the God who made everything. We noticed that Friday night and yesterday. Now we notice, give glory to him. What are we looking at here? How do we bring honour or glory to God? Well, there are many ways we can do that, but one is signalled out, especially in the Bible, especially by the Apostle Paul. Paul was writing to his friends. He said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. He says, why are you not your own? For you were bought, he says, with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, belongs to God, in other words. Notice what Paul says here. He says we should glorify, we should bring honour to God, we should glorify God in our body, For two reasons. Number one, because he says it belongs to God by the death of Jesus Christ. We were bought with a price. I hope you think about that this afternoon. You are not junk. None of us here, none of us on planet Earth are rubbish as far as God is concerned. Or it might be rubbish as far as some other people may be concerned. Some people who once were dear to us but have wandered, have left us and, and, and rejected us, but we are very special and valued by God. We saw this the other day. Peter is speaking here. Knowing that you were redeemed, he says, with the precious blood of Christ... As of a lamb, an enormous price. We noticed yesterday, Jesus, it says he is the Lord, Jehovah God, and he in human form paid an enormous price. We are so special to our great God. Now, this is why Paul wrote these words. He says, I beseech you, I plead with you, he says to his friends living in Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, because of or by the mercies of God, in view of the enormous love of God and what he has done at the cross of Calvary in purchasing us, in paying an enormous price. I beseech you, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Meaning, well, of course, why not? Because of what God has done for us and how he's purchased us and we belong to him. This is only reasonable to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living sacrifice to God. Now, so number two point now. We should glorify God, Paul says, as he wrote to his friends in Corinth, as we noticed a moment ago. He says, because your body and my body is the very temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, do you think about that for a minute? It doesn't get any better. We are never alone when we accept Christ because he is with us through his spirit. We are so important to God that he comes to live right inside of each one of us. That is incredible. What God does that but the God of heaven? God lives in us. When Daniel was there in front of Nebuchadnezzar, you will remember with that great dream, before he actually faced Nebuchadnezzar, those astrologers and psychics said to the king, the gods don't live around here, they're way out there somewhere, but not the God of heaven. He lives in us. We are never alone. God is always with us. And that is an amazing thing. Our body is the very temple of the living God. Now, Jesus said these words that back this up. I will pray to the Father, he says, and he will give you another helper. Or the word is a comforter. Someone sent right alongside and inside our lives that he may abide with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and he will be in you and I will not leave you orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. That is one of the most amazing teachings in this book. You and I may go through the battles of life, but if we have God, he's right there with us. If we've accepted Christ into our life, he comes and lives in us through his spirit. That's what Paul was saying here. Our body is the very temple of the living God. Now, there are many people today, and sadly many Christians, who have this idea. They say something like this. It doesn't matter how you treat your body. As long as your heart is right with God, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to this subject in the Bible concerning our body. This is certainly not the truth of the Bible. It does matter how we treat our body, and we're going to see why by the time we finish. You know, John, the friend of Jesus, the one who wrote the Revelation, said these words to his friends. My dear friends, he wrote, I pray that everything may go well with you, he said, and that you may be in good health. The Bible wants us to have the best health that we possibly can, every one of us. Our body is the very living place of God. And you think about it. Why, if the body is not important, pray tell me, why did Jesus spend so much of his time on earth healing people physically, raising people who were cripples and, and, and healing people who were blind and so on? If the body doesn't matter, why did he do that and spend so much time at it? Jesus valued the human body. In fact, in the Bible, the Bible sees humans as four-dimensional in this book. Four-dimensional. And here are the dimensions that each one of us have as human beings, created by God. Number one, we are social beings. We were made for relationships. That's the way God wired us. We are a mental being, meaning we have a mind to think with. We are peoples who are physical 
beings as well, meaning we have body parts that have been put together very precisely and concisely by the creator God himself. That's how we run. We are physically physical people. And of course, there is another dimension, and that is the spiritual dimension. There are many people in life who try to drive their body, their car, so we put it, on three wheels instead of four wheels. You try driving a car on four, three wheels, and it should be on four. You're going to run into trouble. Some people miss one or all of these. Well, they're not going to miss all of them, or they'll be in the grave, won't they? But some people try to skip out on the spiritual dimension. The spiritual dimensions helps us to really focus in life. Some people think it's not to but just live on your own or something. No, no, we weren't made for that. We were made in these four dimensions, and we see that in the life of Jesus. Notice the way it talks of Jesus when he became a human being, and Jesus increased in wisdom, that's the mind, and in stature physically, and it says in favour with God, that's spiritually, and with men socially. Jesus had this four-dimensional aspect to his own life, and that's the way he made all of us. Now, if we don't believe this, you just try to see what happens if we don't take care of these things. You think when you lose sleep, let me tell you what will happen to you if you keep it up. You will become very irritable, right? When we don't get enough sleep, we become irritable, and it affects our social relationships. It certainly does. When a person worries all the time and is anxious all the time, let me tell you, it produces some very severe physical symptoms. Heart attacks can be the result and stomach ulcers. We know all those things. If I was standing up here this afternoon and I said, Bob, please pass me that green lemon that's right there beside you and bring me the knife up and put that lemon on a plate and I got that knife and I cut that green lemon. Some of you are salivating already. And you haven't even seen the lemon, right? That's the way it is. The way we think has physical reactions as well. Even when we don't even do anything. You can have a dream, it's just in your head, but you wake up sweating. You see, there's a strong connection between all these four dimensions. That's how we were put together as human beings. So how do we care for our bodies the way God wants to? Well, thank God he gives us tremendous information in this book so that we can do exactly what the angel cries out, fear God and give glory to him, which includes through our bodies. Now, I want us to come now and notice something very important right here. In 1972, two doctors, Dr. Breslow and Belloc from the University of uh, California, uh, reported on a tremendous study that they had been doing. They did a nine-year study of 7,000 individuals and revealed how you and I can add 11 and a half years of good quality life to our lives. They discovered there were certain habits that people have who live longer and live healthier while they're living longer. Their quality is good. They just don't live longer and struggle. They are better for these principles. And they shared these principles in a paper. And I'm going to be sharing with you the most important principles that they brought to light in the rest of this afternoon's program. Because you and I can take tremendous advantage from not only what they studied, because what they studied actually found in this book that has uh, already been revealed here. Now, Moses gave very sound scientific health principles. They're in this book. Now, let's think about Moses' writings. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. 
Now, the books of Moses, the writings of Moses are in the Dead Sea Scroll. And I want to emphasize that again before we go too far this afternoon. These principles we know go back to at least 100 to 200 B.C. So that's at least 2,200 years old. But the originals way back before that, around 1500 BC, throw 3,500 years old, the writings of Moses are. But we at least have copies that are 2,200 years old. Now, I want you to notice that Moses was raised by the Egyptians. First of all, by his mother, then by the Egyptians. In fact, you can see this by the name of Moses. You notice the name Moses is an Egyptian name. For example, when you think about some of the pharaohs that we can see in the Cairo Museum today, their mummies, we have Ah Moses and Ka Moses and Tut Moses, and we even have Ra Moses or Ramesses. This Moses means drawn out of. And so Moses has an Egyptian name, not a Hebrew name. Now, not only that, but we also know a lot today about the Egyptian medical practices because they have found many papyrus documents from the ancient Egyptian world, lots of them. Two famous ones are the Edwin Smith papyrus and the Ebers papyrus. I'll come back to the Ebers papyrus a little later on. Now, When you go to Egypt, you can see they were very advanced. They could actually do surgery, and you can see some of their surgical instruments here up on the left-hand side here. These things up the top here, they're some of their surgical instruments. They could actually mend bones and do operations, at least surface operations, not too far down inside the body uh, because they didn't have anesthetics and so on. But they could do surface operations, uh, the ancient Egyptians. Not only that, we also see that we're pretty good at gynecology and obstetrics and so on. You notice this lady here sitting on a stool. And then you notice she's having a giving birth, actually. And over here, the baby is popping out on the right-hand side here. These are inscriptions that we see on the Egyptian tombs and temples. These are from Komombo down below the city of Luxor going down toward Aswan. So they were very smart people in terms of medicine in many areas of ancient Egypt, uh, uh, their practices. But also they had some rather strange practices as well that we're going to look at. Now, you remember that Moses was trained by the Egyptians. The Bible tells us that, and I want you to notice what it says here when we go to the book of, 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 he, of the Bible here. It says, at this time, Moses was born, and he was brought up in his father's house. Now, that means he was brought up in the, an Israelite home for the first 12 years. But then, of course, you remember the story. He's going to be killed, and so his mum puts him in a little basket, and he floats him on the river. And Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. So it says here, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up, it says, as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, says the Bible. Now, this is Luke recording this for us in the book of Acts. So Moses knew about these practices of the ancient Egyptians in terms of their health practices and their medical practices. Now, I want you to notice something. Moses, it's believed, was probably, possibly the pharaoh, the, the, the stepson of Queen Hatshepsut. That's what many believe. 
We can't be sure, but Queen Hatshepsut's mortuary temple is right here in front of you, her famous temple, and many believe that this may have been the stepmother of Moses. We can't be sure, as I said. Moses talked even about the obstetric practices of the ancient Egyptians and uh, what took place. You see this lady sitting on what we call a birthing stool here. I showed you that a moment ago. Moses mentions the birthing stools in his writings. Have a look at this. The Bible says, when Moses is talking about these things, he says these words. And he, Pharaoh, said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, you wouldn't sort of know what that's talking about, perhaps until you went back to the ancient Egyptian practices. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then he shall, she shall live. Notice Moses here talking about the very practices that were in ancient Egypt. They're birthing stools and we can see images of those. But I want to come now to the Ebers Papyrus, a fascinating papyrus document that mentions the ancient Egyptian medical remedies. This Ebers papyrus dates back to the very time of Moses. So these were the practices in Moses' day. Now have a look at some of their interesting remedies. While they got some things right, they got some things woefully wrong. And here are some of them. Here are some of the medical practices that mentioned in the Ebers papyrus from the time of Moses. They believed that bloodletting was good. Now, we know today this is positively dangerous to life. I think it was George Washington who got his blood sucked out of him by putting leeches all over his body because they thought that would heal the man. I think it's what killed him or certainly made him pretty sick at the time. Here's another one. What about this one? Number two remedy that we notice here. If you've got an eye problem, they said, all you need to do is pour in some hot broken glass into the eye. That'd fix the eye, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have an eye anyway, so that'd fix the problem. What an amazing remedy. And here's another one. I like this one. This is for you and me, Bob. For baldness. Uh, Apply goose fat and crocodile dung. That's our problem, man. We need some of that, that remedy there. Goose fat and crocodile dung. I better remember that. Now, what about splinters? Splinters is a very interesting one. They said for splinters, you apply things like some flies dung and uh, some asses dung. Man, no wonder they got tetanus and lockjaw, you see. Now, I, I, I raise these things with you this afternoon because Moses was trained in all the ways of the Egyptians, the Bible says. He knew about this stuff, no doubt. But what if Moses had included some of those things in this book? Let me tell you what people would have said. This book is rubbish, right? And well, they, they, well, they would be correct. But those things are not in the Bible. But there are some other very sound scientific principles in this book, but not this rubbish. How did Moses was able to discern between what was nonsense and what we know today is scientifically correct? Because this book is no ordinary book. And it comes from a God who knows what makes this work and because he's the creator. So Moses was given these sound scientific principles. I want to illustrate one or two of them for you right now. Here is the Vienna General Hospital in the 1840s in Austria. Now, in this general hospital, there was a doctor once sent here by the name of Dr. Ignace Semmelweis. Ignace Semmelweis was put on one of the maternity wards 
And he noticed when he came into this job that the death rate among pregnant women on his ward was exceedingly high. So he decided to observe the practices of the doctors, and this is what he noticed. He noticed that the doctors would do pelvic, would do autopsies on dead bodies, and then they would go straight from that and go, and do uh, pelvic examinations on women and never wash their hands. And he thought, I wonder if there's a connection between a dead body and touching these women like this. I wonder whether we should wash our hands. Now, you see, this wasn't the practice back in those days. People didn't wash their hands like we do today, you know, with the the doctors, they get around with gloves and all sorts. They didn't have that stuff. This was only about 200 years ago, mind you. And so he decided that any doctor who came onto his ward and if they had gone into an autopsy room, if they wanted to do pelvic examinations on the women in his ward, they would have to wash their hands in running water. Now, you can imagine the doctors would do these autopsies and the medical students followed them and they'd all poke their hands inside those cadavers and then go and do this. So now he said, you must wash your hands. And so immediately they did that or introduced that practice. The death rate among the pregnant women in his hospital plummeted. And and, uh, people were quite amazed, of course. But then after a few few months, something tragic happened. He noticed that women were dying again on his ward again, some of the pregnant women. So he thought, we better watch what's happening here. So he watched and he noticed that doctors were doing pelvic examinations on women in that ward and then they would go straight to a living woman and do pelvic examinations without washing their hands and he thought I wonder if there's a connection between touching a live body and another live body maybe we should wash our hands between those two amazing discovery isn't it so he introduced that practice and again the death rate plummeted but one of the problems was the doctors that were working with him hated this fussy practice of washing their hands. So they were able to get rid of Dr. Ignace Semmelweis and they dropped the washing of the hands routine for both the dead and the living. And again, the death rate soared in that hospital. Now we smile and think, what's wrong with those people? But you have to remember, 200, 300 years ago, all of Europe was like that. I talked about how they had their toilet in the kitchen the other day in, in, in Europe. Well, this was one of the, the problems uh, of bad hygiene in ancient Europe. Now, Ignace Semmelweis, that doctor, introduced those practices, but these practices are centuries old. The idea of washing your hands after touching a dead body and so on are found in this book. Moses wrote those principles. They're all in here in the books of Leviticus and Exodus and so on. 3,500 years ago, the Bible instructed people to wash their hands. Why did God do that? Because God is the creator and he knows what's best for his people. He knows what is going to cause disease. And so he wrote these things in this book. 3,500 years ago. Now, it's only in the last 100 to 200 years that this idea of hygiene has been rediscovered. Only in the last one or 200 years. And we just saw a little bit of it there with the hospital in Vienna. These were pioneers in this work. Yet the Bible had it so long ago. Now, notice this statement from medical Uh, records here, this medical book, it says, the idea of contagion, 
disease passing from one to another, was foreign to the classic medical tradition, ancient medical practice, and found in no place, had no place it was it found in the voluminous Hippocratic writings. You know, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, so on. The Old Testament, however, it says, is a rich source for contagious sentiment. There is lots of principles on hygiene in this book. You know, when the Israelites were traveling through the Sinai Desert, God said, if you go to the toilet, take your shovel with you and bury that stuff. Now, sadly, Europe didn't have those principles. And so that's why we have all that plagues that went on throughout Europe many times in the Middle Ages. So you see, Moses was given sound scientific health principles, but not just in the area of hygiene and so on. He was also in the area of diseases. Egyptian mummies have had autopsies done on them, many of them now, and scientists have discovered some interesting things from these Egyptian mummies. Diseases that they had were things like heart disease. They also had cancer. Not only that, vascular diseases, diseases of the arteries and the veins and so on. On top of that, they had arthritis, and of course, they also had hepatitis, and finally, they had trichinosis. These are modern like modern lifestyle diseases we have today. And we know a little bit of why that's the case, because of the practices, the eating habits and so on of the ancient Egyptians. So these things were written so long ago in the Bible, these principles that we're going to see now, and the Egyptians had some of the diseases, and they needn't have had them if they had the word of God. Because notice what God said to the Israelites, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep, it says, keep all his statutes, his, his instructions, even in the area of how to look after our bodies is, is his meaning here. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Notice how practical this book is. God is promising them if they will follow the instructions that are in this book, they will not have these problems. The modern lifestyle diseases, which are actually quite ancient because of the health practices of the Egyptians, as we just mentioned a moment ago. You see, if you buy a car, if you're smart, you'll read the owner's manual, right? Because the owner who made the car knows how to keep that car running. But if you don't read the manual, you'll put water where the gas should go and gas where the water should go and whatever, and you'll soon have it in the mechanic's workshop. And it's the same with our bodies. They were made by Almighty God, and he's the one that knows what keeps them ticking. And so in his word, he has given us very practical instructions. So let's talk about some of the principles aside from hygiene and so on that are mentioned in this book. And I think you'll find it helpful, very helpful, in fact. Temperance. We call this moderation or balance. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. Paul wrote about the importance of temperance and keeping self-control over the way we eat and drink and so on. Notice the way Paul spoke about this as he talked about in the context of, of how or he used the illustration of athletes. He said, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, they guard what they do if they want to win that Olympic gold medal. Or in his day, it was just a wreath. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. They do it just to get a medal today. But we, for an imperishable crown, we are looking for eternity, says Paul. 
If they will do it just for a gold medal, so to speak, how much more should we do it for eternity? I discipline my body, says Paul, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I am careful the way I treat my body and everything, says the Apostle Paul, a great man of God who knew the principle here of looking after our body temple. Now, when it comes to temperance, if it's a poison, how much would we take of a poison? Well, temperance would say none. Would you want to just take a little bit of arsenic or a little bit of cyanide? No, no, the idea is none. That's to be temperate here with a poison. Now, if something is neither uh, bad or not that good, well, a little would be okay, but don't overdo it. And, of course, if it's good, well, have sufficient, but you can even kill yourself by drinking too much water, you know. Not people. too many people do that, but some have killed themselves. Water's a good thing, but be temperate and that be temperate in good things sufficient that's how we would view temperance when it comes to some of these things now let's talk about smoking for just a moment a study by Rodolfo and Stevenson found that 19,000 or 15 percent of all deaths in Australia were due to tobacco smoking that's back in 1998 in the United States of America tobacco smoking caused about 443,000 deaths per year just because of a cigarette Now, we know today how dangerous cigarette smoking is, but it may be that some of us need to be reminded of this. Linus Pauling, Dr. Linus Pauling, discovered that every cigarette takes 14 and a half minutes from life. Well, you say, who cares about 14 and a half minutes? Well, when you add it up, the average, many people smoke 40 cigarettes a day, you know. I don't know how they can afford it today. It's rather expensive, but 40 cigarettes per day means 16 years less life and poor quality health in to boot as well with it. So it's a serious problem when we know many of the problems that come from cigarette smoking, of course, today. Smokers, for example, have 25% higher risk of heart attack than non-smokers. On top of that, we know that when it comes to smokers, uh, there are other problems. Smoking mothers and so on have put their child at risk and so on. Now, God makes a tells us very straight here without me you can do nothing if cigarette smoking is your problem let me do tell you you cannot overcome this without the help of God but God makes a tremendous promise to help us if this is one of the problems that we face in our own life notice what he says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me let me tell you if smoking is a problem in your life God can help you overcome it Paul says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength or gives me the power. Like my father, I mentioned in one of the earlier programs, God helped him give that thing up. Let's talk about alcohol for a moment because this causes a lot of problems in society today as well. You know, alcohol is uh, one of those things that we see is acceptable in society. The sporting world really makes a big thing of this, don't they? You know, alcohol causes red blood cells to clump together. And, of course, this makes it very difficult and impossible for red blood cells to pass through the tiniest blood vessels or the capillaries in our brain, in our heart, and so on. So alcohol does that. It makes the red blood cells clug, clump together. Now, I want you to notice this by Dr. Melvin Kingsley talking about alcohol. He said, alcohol cuts off blood to the brain, killing cells with just one drink. Just one drink 
kills brain cells. That's a serious problem, isn't it? One drink will kill brain cells, says Dr. Melvin Kimmerich from the University of Southern California. Now, research also shows, of course, that alcohol affects the forebrain, this part of the brain, especially which has to do with conscience, with reason, and with judgment, which is why when people are under the influence of alcohol, they do things they would never normally do because it affects this part of the brain and affects our reason and conscience and judgment, which is why the Bible says these words. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, wrote these words in Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. We don't want to be unwise as people living in a time when there is a great war going on. We need to be in control. Solomon goes on to say these words, do not look on the wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup, he says, in other words, when it's alcoholic, when it swirls around smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper, he said. In fact, he goes on and says, your eyes will see strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. In other words, alcoholic wine is not a smart thing to do, says Solomon. It can affect us in ways that we wish we hadn't, so that we wish we hadn't taken it. You know, we know today that two out of every five drinkers has a serious drinking problem. The problem with this is we don't know if we're going to be the two out of the five. But for every five people that start on drink, two of them will have a serious drinking problem. That's 40%. It's like taking a gun with five uh, channel, uh, barrels in it and we put two bullets in five of, in, uh, two, two bullets in five of those cha- chambers. And then we spin the barrel and we pass the gun around. Now, would you play that game? I sure wouldn't play it. My luck would be that I'd blow my brains out the first one when I got hold of the gun, you know. That's a tremendously high risk. But this is what happens. It's going to affect our families. It's going to affect our health. Two out of every five people are affected and have a serious drinking problem. We know that statistically. Now, someone says, and it's a good question, but didn't Jesus make wine? Didn't he turn water to wine? Yes, he surely did. But what we have to understand from the Bible is this, that the same word for alcoholic wine and grape juice is used in the Bible. The same word is used for both just grape juice and that which is alcoholic. It's the context that tells us what sort of wine it is. Is it grape juice or is it alcoholic? You will notice, for example, here, the Bible uses the idea of new wine. This is talking about grape juice here, but it uses the word wine. As the new wine is found in the cluster, in other words, in the bunch of grapes, and one says, do not destroy it for a blessing is in it. Now, When Jesus went to the cross and they offered him wine, which was clearly alcoholic on that occasion, he refused to take it. Why did Jesus refuse? He wanted to have his mind in gear. He was in a battle with the enemy of our souls and he did not want to be subject and let his mind be be, 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 uh, out of control or lessened in capacity for one second. He wanted to be able to defeat the devil. Now, do you think that the Jesus who refused wine on the cross is going to make enough wine to get a village drunk, turn water into alcoholic wine? 
How we know that is not the case, because this is Jesus. Not only that, who was the one who's told Solomon, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and so on, and, and, and don't be deceived by this thing and don't be unwise. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to say one thing and then make enough wine to make a whole village drunk. No, the same Jesus who refused alcohol on that occasion made grape juice for the people at that feast of the, Jew, of the, of the wedding feast. Now, some of us like Shakespeare and some of us can't stand Shakespeare, but Shakespeare sure got this one right. He said, O oh God, that men should put an enemy in their mouths to steal away their brains. And that's the truth, isn't it? You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.